Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I've been waiting for a girl like you to come into my life and listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast with me. I want to thank the band Foreigner for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, We'll give you a Wicked Good and Raw Bone podcast. Shout out to my buddy Jim Valley, who had surgery a couple of days before we recorded this. We're going to have him on real soon. Just a shout out to Jim. And let me see, this, this is the final Stick to Wrestling of February. We are going to have WrestleMania month all March. We are going to commemorate, discuss, analyze some of the biggest WrestleManias of all time. Also, I got a new Chromebook. I'm all excited. I can do the Stick to Wrestling podcast on the Chromebook. I want to thank Ryan Ashby and Ted Henschel for donating to this podcast and putting money into this Chromebook, which I'm going to do nothing with except record Stick to Wrestling because it doesn't do anything with Windows applications. But anyway, if you'd like to donate, no amount is too much and certainly no amount is too few. You can PayPal me at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. One more announcement. This is episode number 194. In early April, we're going to have episode 200 of Stick to Wrestling, and it's going to be nothing but questions from our Facebook group. So if you have not joined the Facebook group yet, definitely do so. Just get on Facebook, search Stick to Wrestling, and you are good to go. And with that, I want to bring on Chris Tabar. Chris, it's been too long since I've had you on. How are you? I'm doing real well, and hey, I want to thank you for playing uh, that Foreigner song. Uh, Foreigner was my favorite band for almost 40 years, and that is, in my opinion, one of the greatest songs of all time. Absolutely love it. So thank you for using that one. And they wrote it about Stick to Wrestling like 40 years before it even became a thing. What a great band. It's amazing how they knew that that far ahead of time. Incredible. That they knew this was going to be their favorite podcast when they didn't even know it, when a podcast hadn't even been invented yet. That's how advanced Foreigner was. Exactly. Mick Jones was a future seer. (laughs) Okay, a day before we recorded this podcast, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards came out. And we are going to travel back in time 35 years to what they and the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Awards would have looked like for the year of 1986. Let's start with the, uh, let me see, the best wrestling promotion. This is for the Wrestling Observer only because the uh, After Mags didn't have that. Tabe, what was 1986's best wrestling promotion in your opinion? Without a doubt, that's got to be Jim Crockett Promotions. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I know there were other ones that were that were running hot. I know that the WWF was, was riding high with WrestleMania. AWA was all over ESPN and actually having a few good matches. World Class was still alive and kicking. But without a doubt, when with all of the different shows that they had and all and the top flight match quality that they put on, Jim Crockett promotions, for sure. Since we're talking just North America, definitely Jim Crockett promotions. Okay, they got my vote too, but I have been wrestling, pardon the pun, with that for the last couple of days because the UWF was incredible in 1986. Yeah, I I, I agree, but the match quality 
is just not quite there. The t- the TV is absolutely top flight, no question, but the match quality isn't isn't quite there. You're not going to get the 35 minute classics that you would get with uh, Jim Crockett Promotions. And that's ultimately why I went with JCP. Like, I have so many great memories from the year 1986 with Jim Crockett Promotions. I mean, we're talking from January 1st through, you know, the end of December. And UWF, it was great, but it's like, okay, tell me what was great about it. And I'm like, well, the Eddie Gilbert, Bill Watts angle, and then the Freebirds did some great stuff. But they just didn't have the the number of moments, in my opinion, that JCP did. But I, I think I, I'm not going to say, you know, no doubt about it. I think it's really close. And in the Wrestling Observer, the UWF got the award. Yeah, and, I can, and I can see that, you know, I... I... I don't know that the UWF wouldn't be an incorrect choice. For me, it's a it's a no brainer because I think the UWF especially was more of a they had a they were a TV product where everything was focused on TV, where JCP was trying to drive you to the arenas. And yes, I know Watts was was definitely wanting people in the arenas, but he made his he made his weekly shows a lot hotter. I just think that the the top top match quality that you got with Jim Crockett Promotions. Result made it a better promotion overall. You just weren't going to get the top, top, top uh, match quality in the UWF, which is not to knock their guys. That just wasn't what Watts was going for. He wanted 15 minutes of action, not 30 minutes of classic. Yeah, and on top of everything, like JCP, let's just be honest, they had the star power. They had Dusty, they had Flair, they had the Horseman, they had Magnum, they had Nikita. You know, that's not a smack in the mouth to Ted DiBiase, who I think is right up there. Uh, Two of the Freebirds were right up there, and then it kind of ends. Well, Duggan was up there too, but he was gone by the end of the year. You know, the the guys, the, the rest of the UWF roster just didn't have that kind of star power, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean they had a lot of great guys. They had they had Doctor Death on his way up, but yeah, when you're talking wrestling stars, if you ask, especially mainstream people, if you ask mainstream people to name wrestling stars, other than Ted DiBiase, and only because of his time in the WWF, it's going to be a long time before you get to some of the UWF guys. But where casual fans are naming Flair, they're naming Dusty, they're going to name the Horseman, you know, a lot of guys before they get to the UWF guys. Agreed. I mean, you know, and, and Vince had national television by this point. The And he was on national cable. Crockett was on national cable. And one big reason I think Watts went, went down is because he never, you know, he got on for six, six weeks in 1985. But after that, no national cable. Exactly. That hurt him big time. He had to kind of piece something together, syndicated, and just didn't have that one channel that went everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And, and and both McMahon and Crockett had both cable and a very strong syndicated package. All right, best on interviews. This is for the Observer only. The PWI family did not have this. Tabe, who did you go with for best on interviews? Okay, so... Anybody that has talked to me about who I think is one of the most underappreciated stars of the 80s will probably not be surprised by this pick, but I'm going to go with Tully Blanchard. I think Tully is maybe one of the two or three best promo guys of all time, and that's because, for me, he didn't follow a formula. He could be the angry screaming and ranting guy he could be the calm guy he could be the arrogant guy he he had the whole package where with with flair and some of the other guys it was more of a shtick 
Now, that was obviously a really good shtick, but for me, Tully had the variety, and he was on TV all the time uh, doing it. He's my guy. Now, okay, it's funny. I, I reached a different conclusion than you using the same criteria because there were so many great guys on the stick in 1986. And if someone were to say uh, Jerry Lawler, Ric Flair, Bobby Heenan, Jim Cornette, Eddie Gilbert, Bill Watts, I would not argue with you. But I went with this guy because he had multiple speeds and multiple gears. Michael P.S. Hayes, I thought, was the best guy on the stick in 1986. You know, that's not bad. I, that's not a bad pick. He was really good for for Watts in '86 in the commentary booth too. Um, and you, you know, it could be it could be Arn Anderson even. Arn was great. There's like you said, there's so many great guys. But you'll notice what we're what we're not naming is we're not naming anybody from the WWF. Who in the WWF was a good interview besides Bobby Heenan in 1986? Bobby Heenan and Randy Savage. Like who else was good? Okay, and and Savage is, you know, he's more remembered for I don't know if it's it's not so much the quality of his of his interviews, but kind of the style. He's more he's yeah. more of a shtick guy. Yeah, Bobby would be would be a good one because he, he you know he had to do it for a whole bunch of different guys. But it's not like Hogan was a great promo. He was more just charismatic. And who else do you got? You got King Kong Bundy, the British Bulldogs, the you know Valentine and Beefcake. These are not great promo people definitely the the best ones were down south or even a few of them maybe in the awa yeah who did you like in the awa i was going over them i mean you've got zabisco who was really good you've got bockwinkle who was winding down then after that i don't know uh maybe hansen if you catch him on the good day I, you see, I love to stand. I've said this on the show before. I love Stan Hansen in the WWF in Georgia, etc. Then he went to the AWA and he started doing that like goofy cowboy thing, and I didn't like it. Yeah, with the the kind of the drooling tobacco guy. I, I mean, like, like I said, it. you can catch it if if you catch him on the right day, he's good. Um, I like his his ring work still in the AWA. Oh yeah, not so much on the stick, but you know. Now, he left a lot to be desired, I thought, on the stick in the AWA. No surprise, the Wrestling Observer newsletter uh, gave it to Jim Cornette. And once again, if you if you said Jim Cornette was the best interview in 1986, I will not argue with you. He got <laughs> he had that feud with Baby Doll where it seemed like those two legitimately hated each other. Yeah, I, you know, I was watching him for something uh, the other day from 1988, actually. And he went on a rant of probably... Th- three minutes where it you know it's just cornet at his frenetic high energy best and somehow not a single fumbling of any word and just going on and on and on and what did he say the line he used was something like uh when you get in the ring with the midnight express you're gonna it's gonna feel like giving birth to a a 22 pound flaming porcupine what what a a brilliant line, uh, but of course that was 1988, so he doesn't get credit for it in 1986. Um, I actually didn't really consider him for best interview here because um, I I kind of stuck him in the in the manager category. He could be you know you could put him in in there, but he's more of a one trick pony because he's strictly just talking on behalf of the Midnight Express. So I kind of disqualified him. 
No, I, I, I see that. Uh, if we want to talk about 1988 with Jim Cornette, I'll never forget the line where uh, I think Tully Blanchard said, um, Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton are best friends, and whenever Arn is seen with Bobby, they people think he's with an ugly woman. And Cornette gets on, and he's like, it's just a natural assumption. Arn Anderson runs around with so many ugly women. That's a natural assumption. And he just like zing Tully. All right, and yeah, he got it in the one. Okay, Manager of the Year. We're going to do both the Wrestling Observer and Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Uh, For the Wrestling Observer, who do you think gets Manager of the Year, Tabe? Using their criteria, I should say. Jim Cornette, no doubt. Jim Cornette is mine as well. He, uh, I think he adds more value uh, than pretty much anybody else. Uh, he, He talks people in... And let's be honest, he's a big, big part of the reason why the Midnight Express are remembered so well. And he was an active part in, in angles uh, with, with the Midnight Express where he's the, he's the guy, you know, he's taken a beating at, at times. People want to see him get killed, not just, not just the Midnight Express. I agree with you, and I'll, I'll even go a step further. I mean, you could replace Bobby Eaton in the Midnight Express. I mean, no, no offense to Bobby, but you could. Obviously, you, they did replace uh, Dennis Condry in the Midnight Express, but you could never replace Jim Cornette. Absolutely. He's, he, yeah, you're exactly right. He's the one key part of, of that team that cannot be replaced at all. Yeah, I, I, I went with Jim Cornette using Observer Guidelines as well. How about Pro Wrestling Illustrated Guidelines? Who did you go with? I went with Bobby Heenan. Bigger star on a bigger stage, more, and he's, he's managing more than just one or two people. And he... I kind of so for the for I couldn't really find the criteria exactly for PWI, so I just kind of looked at it as, uh, you know, kind of from a kayfabe perspective, who would a casual fan pick as the biggest manager of the year? And it could be maybe Jimmy Hart, you know, Jim, obviously Jim Cornette is there, but to me, I think the the biggest star on the biggest stage, as far as a manager is concerned, is Bobby Heenan. You you put it the best way you possibly could. When we talk about the PWI perspective, it is from a kayfabe standpoint, and I, I think it's Jim Cornette by a mile. I mean, even a mile ahead of J.J. Dillon, who's managing the Horsemen, uh, the WWF clearly was the top company from a kayfabe standpoint, and Cornette is the, the king of the managers in the WWF. I think, again, from a kayfabe standpoint, no anyone came close to him. Cornette or, or Heenan? Uh, he, did I say Cornette? I meant Heenan, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, you said Cornette a couple times. No ah. problem. I th- th- <laughs> Heenan, Heenan. Okay, yeah. So we're, we're right on track. We agree with each other there. All right. Now, here's something. Um, I did not look at the award winners before I started you know, casting my own val- ballots or whatever, and I was shocked to see that in Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the winner was Captain Lou Albano. And then I thought about it. I'm like, okay, you know, Bill Apter, you know, goes way back with Albano, and Albano retired, uh, I want to say summer 1986. Uh, retired, Vince kicked him out. <laughs> but it was a, it looked like a real retirement, it more or less was. So Albano probably got his as like a lifetime achievement award. Okay, that was, I, no, I will admit, I did look at some. Before and after, sometimes on occasion it was just to remind myself of who was eligible. Because I like like for our next category, I had to look some people up. Same here. I, and I 
I get where I get where they're coming from. You know, he he managed the the Bulldogs to the to the World Tag Team Championship. He was on the big stage at WrestleMania, but yeah, there's no way he's a top the top manager in wrestling in 1986 from any perspective. No, and I by 1986, Lou Albano was he was not even any good in my opinion. People say that the Bulldogs would not have gotten over without Albano, and I mean they were over before Albano, so I don't know where that's coming from. That's nonsense. Yeah, they were over. They were over before they had a real name. They were over when they were just Davy Boy and Dynamite teaming together at the end of 1984 and early 85. No, you're right, actually. And by the time they got hot and they put them with Albano, the injuries started piling up. And by the time they won the tag team titles, they were no longer the the number one or in the argument for the number one team in the United States. Yep. Exactly. All right. Rookie of the year, and like Chris was saying, this one's tough because when did the guy become a rookie? Um, So anyway, Wrestling Observer, Chris, who did you go with? I went with Lex Luger. And actually, I picked him for PWI, too, if you don't mind me spoiling that ahead of time. For me, Lex Lex debuted in, I I looked this up just before the the podcast here, uh, in October of 85, and he was a... So... He didn't debut in '86, but he's. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna grandfather him in because he. It was just a month and a half of of '85, so he's still a rookie in '86, and he took over in Florida. He's winning titles. He's main eventing with with Barry Windham, and eventually he he main events uh, a battle of the belts with um, with Ric Flair. He's all over the place. He looks like a million bucks. Looks like he's on his way to being a major major superstar. I think I think he's the top guy as a rookie. Lex Luger is like that baseball player who gets called up August 1st. So I think the next year he's eligible for, to be a rookie. And for PWI, I had Luger. For the Wrestling Observer, I went with Owen Hart. Owen Hart was a guy everyone was talking about in, in 1986. Um, I mean, Luger looked great, but Owen Hart wrestled great. It looked like, you know, Owen had a spectacular future in front of him, which I wouldn't go with spectacular, but, I mean, he did well as a pro wrestler. Yeah, he, had, he ended up having a, a good career, no question about it. That's a guy, you know, at that he wasn't on my on my radar. I went and looked up. So, like I said, I uh, this is the one I looked up because I couldn't remember who was who was a rookie in '86. So I looked up the like the top four guys for PWI and for uh, Wrestling Observer, and I don't remember seeing Owen's name. And so it wasn't a guy. He was, it wasn't a guy I considered. I don't think I would have I would have listed him anyway. Maybe for the Wrestling Observer, definitely not for PWI, because I I rem- I think of him as more of a 1987 guy. But definitely, you know, for in-ring, he obviously is a lot better than Luger, even as rookies. Yeah, he got votes in the in the Observer, but he did not win. The guy who won in the Observer, and I think he could have won both PWI and Observer, was Bam Bam Bigelow. Another guy who had an excellent start. He tore up Memphis in the summer of 1986. Big guy with a unique look. Back in 1986, people didn't have tattoos on their heads, and Bigelow did. And despite not not being a muscular guy, he looked like he was going to be a huge star. Fell short of what I projected for him. And I think a lot of it, 
is costuming. I know that sounds kind of dumb, but, you know, when he was in Memphis, he looked like a guy who just got off a prison yard where, you know, when the WWF got a hold of him, they gave him a dumb outfit and he kept it. Yeah, he's a guy that, you know, you want to talk about guys who had good careers but still were disappointing. He's definitely up there. I mean, you look at the way he bounced around in the late 80s. It seemed like he was in the WWF one minute, then he was in the JCP, and then he's over here, over there, all over the place. But in 86, he definitely looked like a guy that was going to be a superstar. He may not have been great yet, but he's that guy, that rookie that that has the hot potential. He comes up, he has a hot week in late September or something, and you're like, that guy's going to be special next year. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he was yet. I don't think he was yet, but Bam Bam looked like he was going to be really, really special because he could move so well for a guy that was gigantic. I mean, I remember Lawler brought him in as a tag team partner against uh, Tommy Rich and Austin Idol, and the guy was just on fire. It looked like he was going to be the next big thing. And, you know, it's not like, like you said, it's not like he had a bad career. He just didn't have the headlining against Hulk Hogan WrestleMania career that I thought he could have had. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when your biggest memory is is wrestling Lawrence Taylor at WrestleMania, eh. Mm, yeah. You know. And that was supposed to be his big break. He was supposed to be, the, you know, one of the top guys in the company after that. And it just never happened for him. Exactly. All right. Most hated slash best heel. Who did you have for the PWI version of this tape? I went with Paul Orndorff. So Orndorff manages to turn Roddy Piper into a babyface in '86. He's got he turns on Hulk Hogan, and. You know, he's. I saw actually saw him against Roddy Piper in '86 in Detroit, and the crowd just absolutely wanted to kill him. So this is, uh, yeah, he's the he's the guy. I, I there's I had a, a lot of options. You could have gone with Flair. You could have even gone with uh, with Baby Doll after she switched back to heel and helped helped Flair. You could have gone with Nikita during early, for his feud with Magnum early in the year. Lots of different guys, but I went with Orndorff. For the PWI slash Kayfabe Award, I went with Orndorff. I mean, it was the biggest turn of the year, even though it was, you know, artistically, I didn't think they did a good job with it at all, but who cares? It drew like crazy. Um, I mean, he, he's the guy who turned on Hulk Hogan. He, he is the Kayfabe heel of the year. Absolutely. I mean, yes, they certainly gave it away weeks ahead of time and certainly uh, for, let us know it was coming, but it still worked. You know, he, that, that clothesline on TV, that instant hate. And so, he, yeah, he's the guy from a kayfabe perspective. Even though the turn wasn't really well done, in my opinion, it worked, and that's all that counts. It, it drew great crowds. And, I mean, really, from a kayfabe standpoint, you know, who else is going to be number one? It's, you know, I mean, I think Flair might be a distant number two, maybe Nikita a distant number two. Yeah, I would agree with that. Flair, maybe Flair, but Flair got so many cheers a, as well. It's awfully hard to to give him the kayfabe uh, heel of the year. And Flair wasn't drawing seventy five thousand people in Toronto to get to watch Hogan kill him. You know, that's something I wanted to look up before the show, and I forgot to. I will look that up this week. Like, I'm I'm trying to remember. Like, did they actually sell tickets for that, or was that part of the Canadian? Uh, uh, Canadian, whatever it is, the National Fair or the National 
Expo or something, Expo 86 or something. I want to say yeah. that, that, that that started out as a normal house show and there was so much demand that they moved it. So I I don't think it was part that they that you just got a t- that you got admission just for having a ticket to the to the fair, but I could be wrong on that. I, I'm I'm not sure either way, but I mean it. I mean in a way it doesn't matter. It looked really good and people wanted to see it. And you know Toronto was one of the WWF's uh, hottest cities. Yeah, exactly, and it obviously worked and big show and set up the you know the the future of their big shows like. Well, like WrestleMania three, because it showed them they could go to a big stadium and draw big, big, big numbers. Exactly, and yeah, we're going to be doing a WrestleMania three show in the very near future. Thirty-five years is a long time, as Andre the Giant would say. How about using the Wrestling Observer criteria? Who is heel of the year? I still went with Paul Orndorff, and I know, like you said, the turn itself was not the greatest, but. As a heel, I thought he did the the best job of drawing people in, wanting to see him get destroyed. You know, there you could maybe, like you said, maybe make the case for Nikita because people really, really hated Nikita during his feud with with Magnum. You could maybe make the case for Flair and some other guys, but for me, I think even just from the Wrestling Observer perspective, I I still put Orndorff at number one. Orndorff definitely got consideration from me because, let's face it, drawing power is one of the criteria, and he clearly drew. You could argue that half, more than half the year he was a babyface, but, I mean, the, the what happened at the end counted. There were a lot of good candidates, once again. You know, you're looking at Ric Flair, Eddie Gilbert, Tully Blanchard. Bill Dundee had one hell of a first half of 1986, enough to put him into consideration. I ultimately went with Michael Hayes as the best heel. He did a lot, so many great things with Watts. I mean, he he added the name P.S. purely sexy to his name. He had the goofy David Lee Roth uh, video. And he was, and he, I mean, he got slapped in the face by Dark Journey because hey, man, I, I don't want you to be my old lady or anything. I just want to see you want to take a ride down Bad Street. And he he was fantastic. I loved him. Yeah, that you know that's a good pick. I I I forget about Hayes in that era, but man, he he was really good for Watts. They certainly they freshened up their act by coming to to the UWF, and they certainly helped Watts by being big stars coming in. And he and he was all over the place. He was promo. He was wrestling. He was in the in the commentary booth where he was actually pretty darn good. And yeah, not a not a bad pick. Certainly, under uh, Wrestling Observer criteria, I could, you know, I won't, I won't argue with you. I like Orndorf over him, but that's not a bad pick at all. No, and let me see. In the Observer, oh, Hayes, got, Hayes actually got it in the Observer, and you brought up a good point. Yeah, he he really did add to the show, sitting next to Jim Ross doing commentary. And I know there's at least a couple of people who are like, "Wow, well, you know, I started watching wrestling in 1990, and Michael Hayes sucked." Yeah, after this was his peak year, and he started going downhill fast in 1989, and just never made a comeback. Yeah, I, yeah, that. Uh, yeah, I would put 86 as it, as probably his peak, maybe not the peak of the Freebirds, but his peak for sure by because he kind of matured into into being his character, had gotten better in the ring, had gotten better on the mic and everything else. Yeah, he was really really good in 86. 
Yeah, he started wrestling really early. He uh, made the point continuously that he was the same age as Lex Luger in 1989. But and Hayes was like, I've been in the business for 10 years or 12 years, I think. You've been in the business for three. And it just goes to show you, like, you know, Michael Hayes looked and felt so much older than Lex Luger in 1989. Well, for sure. How old was he? He was, what, like 24 when the start of the Von Erichs feud happened, something like that? I think he was 23. It was incredible how God. young everyone in that feud was, except for Buddy Roberts. Yeah, boy, because he, he, seems, he seems like he's 34, 35, grizzled veteran. Man, to be that young and that good, wow. Yeah, he started when he was, what, 17, I believe? And Gordy started when he was 14. 14. He just lied about his age and got on uh, the uh, IWA shows. Yeah, four, 14 years old. Holy cow. <laughs> and he was big enough to... And he was believable, yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. Oh, man. All right, yeah, the Freebirds back in the glory days, but they all kind of fell apart, in my opinion. All right, most popular slash best babyface from the PWI version. Uh, Tabe, what do you think? I got to go with Hulk Hogan. Uh, he's the biggest star in the world. He was draw. He drew the big numbers everywhere he went. He was the main. He was the mainstream guy. He's the. He was the big star on NBC. He was the big star at WrestleMania. He's the the guy. He's the superhero in Toronto putting down Paul Orndorff. Uh, he's the guy. Yeah, I went with Hogan for both of them. You know, as far as I mean, Hogan was king in 1986. I mean, he was. You know, the babyface's role is to draw money, and that's exactly what he did. Clearly the number one guy in the sport. I mean, the only real argument would be, who is number two? And my number two would actually be the Rock and Roll Express. But that's how over, crazy over they were in 1986. Okay, yeah, I could totally see that. Now, I did not go with Hogan for the Wrestling Observer. I went with Nikita Koloff. I can see that. And so, now Nikita was, you know, you were talking... uh, you know, for or you talked about Orndorff, where he was a face for much of the year. Well, Nikita was only a face for what a month and a half. Uh, more like three months. No, no, more like two months. Because it was uh, right after the Magnum's accident was what, like October of '86, and Nikita gets turned immediately. But I went, I went with Nikita just for that one moment where he walks out for the tag team cage match with Dusty, and the crowd is. They don't know what's coming, and he walks in. He walks in the ring, and he join and he's and he shows that he's on Dusty's side, and the and the and the place goes berserk, just for that that little bit. For those two months at the end of the year, Nikita's my top guy. Yes, he fell apart after that. No, he wasn't that popular before that. But just that two months, man, he was he was on top. Yeah, uh, you know what? The turn was late October 1986, and I know this because they aired the turn the same night the Red Sox lost Game 6 to the Mets in the World Series. Yeah, we're talking about this two out of three episodes. Um, But I I was at the game, and I come home on Sunday. I get home on time to see the Sunday WTBS show. It was in progress. I turn on the TV. And Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff are sitting next to each other on what was usually the Pro Wrestling Illustrated set. And I was just blown away. I'm like, what is going on here? And I finally saw a tape uh, later that night of what aired that Saturday. And, and yeah, that was an incredible moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, like, you know, 
Yes, Nikita, like I said, Nikita didn't. It didn't really pan out. This is probably like the end of his career as a top guy, yeah, really top top guy. But for just for those couple of months, man, he was something special. And that's all that counts, you know, from what happened January 1st, 86 through New Year's Eve, 1986. Nothing else matters. All right. And in uh, the Observer gave it to Hogan and PWI gave it to Roddy Piper. Now, I always thought Roddy Piper's babyface turn was a little bit of a bust. And I was thinking about this over the last couple of days. I mean, for one, I'm sure... The PWI like went to press right after Piper turned heel, like fall of 1986, and they were just kind of projecting that he was going to be the top babyface. And I kind of thought about this for the first time this week. I always felt like the WWF, it was almost like they didn't want Piper to pass Hogan as the number one guy in the company, and they kind of kept him down. I didn't think they gave him the best feuds, but then I was like, you know what? He was only around for about six months as a babyface. They might have known that he was planning on retiring. You know, that's entirely possible. I don't, I don't know that they had to worry about him passing Hulk Hogan as the, as the top guy. I don't know that he really had that to be able to, to do that. He's, as he, maybe, Probably not. I mean, he had, certainly he had some of the charisma and he had some of the promos, but I don't know that in the ring— he was, and it certainly Hogan was no, you know, he was no masterwork creator in the ring. But Hogan was was a tremendous storyteller in the ring, and he had what the WWF was wanting as far as aura in the ring. And and Piper certainly didn't have that. Yeah, I don't know that they would have been worried about it. And like you said, there's probably they probably were aware that Piper was talking about it, and may, and maybe he'd let Vince know, hey, you know, you know, I got issues with my hip, and oh, and the other. Ill, health issues and he's got the movie stuff going on. May, so maybe Vince was, even if they hadn't directly discussed it, maybe Vince was like, yeah, I'm not sure I can commit to this guy and push him to the moon as a top, top baby face. Yeah, and, you know, part of it might have been, I mean, we'll never know how this went down, but Piper had been out of the WWF for a while. Maybe he knew he was getting the movie role, and it's like, hey, can I be a babyface for a few months because I'm about to hit Hollywood? And, I mean, wow, you know, he was the star. He wasn't just in the movie. He was the star of They Live, and that was a John Carpenter movie, and Carpenter movies were a big deal back then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like you said, and he was... It wasn't like he was cast as Roddy Piper. He wasn't playing Roddy Piper in the movie. He was the guy in the movie with maybe some Roddy Piper influence. And like you said, he was the star. He was he was definitely the star. He was in the whole thing, not just a five-minute cameo like Terry Funk in something. And, you know, that was a big deal. It wasn't obviously like the number one movie of the year, but a lot of people saw that movie, and it was good, and he was good in it. It was an excellent movie. If anyone here listening has not seen They Live, I strongly recommend it, and it is even more relevant, I would say, today than it was in 1988 when it came out. Exactly. All right. And let me see. So Pro Wrestling Illustrated gave it to Piper. The Wand gave my most popular uh, Best Baby Face to Hulk Hogan. All right. Let's go to Feud of the Year. This is the first time Pro Wrestling Illustrated has had it. In your opinion, using Pro Wrestling Illustrated criteria, Chris, what was Feud of the Year? 
Well, if the top baby face of the year is Hulk Hogan and the top heel is Paul Orndorff, and those two had a feud with each other, um, yeah, I'm going to go with Orndorff and Hogan as the feud of the year. They drew 65,000, 70,000 people. It was, the, without a doubt, the biggest feud in terms of mainstream noise in 86. Using Pro Wrestling Illustrated criteria, of course, I, I, it, obviously it's Hulk Hogan versus Paul Orndorff. Uh, I'm trying to think what would be second place, probably Magnum TA and Nikita Koloff. If I'm using Wrestling Observer criteria, uh, draw counts and quality of the feud counts, and I'm going with a little bit of an upset. Jerry Lawler and Dutch Mantell against Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell. This feud was phenomenal. It started when Mantell was a heel, teaming with Dundee and Buddy Landell. Dundee runs Jerry Lawler out of Memphis. Gone for a year, loses a loser-leave-town match. Buddy Landell gets a little too cute for Dutch Mantell's taste. Now, the, the two of uh, Buddy and Bill team up and beat up uh, Dutch Mantell. Jeff Jarrett is just a referee, and Landell and Dundee try to gouge his eye out. Jerry Jarrett is crying on television over what's happened to his son, and he comes out and he says, I don't care if they sue me, I don't care what they do, I'm bringing Jerry Lawler back. And that's just the setup of the feud. If you haven't seen this, seek it out on YouTube. It is one of the very best feuds of all time. I have to go with it. Okay. I can, you know, I've heard lots of good stuff. I've seen absolutely nothing from that feud. That's a, definitely a big hole in the stuff that Tabe has watched on video. That's a big hole uh, as far as that goes. Um, I, but like I've heard lots of good things about it. Uh, that whole feud and the, the and I know Bill and Buddy were really good together as heels. Then they have a show or something that was supposed to be great. And then there was wasn't there a lot like a big uh, Texas death match as part of the feud as well. Uh, yeah, that that's not a bad pick. For me, for Wrestling Observer, I went with uh, Magnum and Nikita. That was strictly based, for me, I mean, it was obviously, it was very, it drew well, and it lasted a long time. I mean, they were wrestling each other in early 86, all the way up through October of 86, when uh, Magnum's wreck happened. There, They had a, a bunch of matches on TV. They had the hot angle with with the best of seven U.S. title series that went, you know, 57 matches or whatever it was. <laughs> and then after the after the best of seven was over, they had a, a two out of three falls match on Worldwide where each guy got in their finisher and got a clean pinfall. You know, just a tremendous match. And, they, you know, and you could see they're just building and building and building and building to something really special at Starcade. And, of course, we didn't get the payoff. But everything else that from from those two that year was just really really good, and the and the matches were excellent. You know, neither guy is considered, you know, they're not elite workers, but put them in the ring together and their stuff worked. They worked together really well, and their matches were great. Enough heat in those matches to melt a candle. It was insane. I mean, what I saw on TV, the crowd was just going nuts. And, and when Nikita finally won the title, I mean, just the way the place became, I, I, think, I think it was in uh, Charlotte, just be, became unplugged. The crowd just, you know, everyone just kind of put their head down. It was great. One thing I also want to say about the, uh, the Buddy Landell feud, 
if I was watching wrestling on TV, and, you know, by 1986, I'm like, you know, obviously it's all a work. There were times you would think, okay, is this real? Is Bill Dundee looked so out of control at times. You're like, is this real? Has he actually snapped? Because, like, Lance Russell wouldn't get near him. And he punched a, a hole through the wall of the TV set. So it was just, it, it felt real on, on some level. So like I said, I guess I've really put that one over and for good reason. All right, let's see. Match of the year. Uh, let, now, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and The Observer are going to have way different criteria on this. Uh, Tabe, what was your PWI match of the year? I went with uh, the Bulldogs versus Valentine and Beefcake from WrestleMania 2. Wow. So, I, boy, I thought long and hard about this one. And, I, and for me, I was like, okay, what, what would a casual fan in 1986 be picking as the top match? And that was, that again, that's on the big stage at WrestleMania. It's, it stole the show. It was by far the best match on that card. And it had the the spectacular spot with uh, Dynamite falling off the ring post and for you know and injuring himself to doing it, and that's a match that even casual fans would point to in 1986 and say that was a tremendous match, and so that's kind of what sold it for me. I, but man, there there was a lot of other options, but that was the one I decided to go with. I, I can. The more you talk, the more I can see that. I mean, you know, it, it's a big deal. You have Ozzy Osbourne in their corner, and you're right. It was the only good match at WrestleMania too. And it was a title change, which yep. which does help. And it was kind of the culmination of their thing. And of course, they did end up doing matches on Saturday night's main event afterwards. But it was the the peak of that of that rivalry as well. I understood why they wanted to wait for WrestleMania to put the, t- the titles on the Bulldogs, but I, th- I thought that chase felt a little bit long. In my opinion, that's what I thought in 1986. I would, I would agree with that. It felt like they probably should have been champions in 85. They were really, really hot. And, and, you know, and the way the WWF worked, it didn't, usually didn't take very long for tag teams to, they, you know, they'd show up and they'd do a few weeks of TV and then there'd be the you know the non the non title match or the inconclusive match for uh, with the champs, and then the next week they're winning the title. So it wasn't usually like this long build up, but with the Bulldogs, it was a long time. Yeah, it felt like that feud dragged on, and I understand why they did it. But you could have put the titles on the Bulldogs in 1985 and just had them wrestle someone else at WrestleMania in 1986. But anyway. For match of the year, I mean, using PWI standards, I mean, a babyface wins the world title, and, you know, they've agreed with me, Dusty Rhodes over Ric Flair in Greensboro, I think, either Greensboro or Charlotte, I don't know, but whenever Dusty won the title, I thought he was going to win it in Atlanta, but uh, to me, that, that by using PWI standards, that to me is number one. What would be my number two? Let me think. Ah, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, and I know the PWI put Dusty on the cover after he won the belt, and yeah, and that's the one that ended up winning. I I, I can totally see that from from a, a casual fan perspective, from a kayfabe perspective. Sure, I, yeah. Dust, the, and you know, again, it's it's kind of the payoff of all of Dusty getting screwed at, at Starcade '85 and the long drawn out process of him. Can he ever win the title again? Can Rick run the the gauntlet of all the different title defenses at the Bash? All of that stuff, and then Dusty wins in the cage. Sure, totally, I can totally see that as a, as a match of the year. 
I mean, I've said this before. I was not a. I, I had not been even a little bit smartened up uh, summer of 1986. But as soon as um, they said, "Yeah, Ric Flair is going to have 13 different opponents for the Great American Bash," I'm like, "Well, someone's winning the title, and I can't see who else it's going to be but Dusty Rhodes." Using Observer Match of the Year criteria, and again, this is U.S. and Canada only. Uh, what did you think was Match of the Year 1986? So mine is probably one that's a little under the radar, and I did, and boy, I had a this was a tough one. I had a lot of there's a lot of choices. I, there was Flair and Wyndham at Battle of the Belts. There was the Midnight Rockers and against Rose and Summers on ESPN. There was the one hour draw with with Henning and Bachwinkle. You know, lot the two out of three falls match that I mentioned with Magnum and Nikita, lots and lots of choices. But for me, what I went with is it was uh, Tully Blanchard against Ronnie Garvin on NWA Pro in May of 1986, the match that went the whole hour uh, and ended up with Dusty wrapping Ron Garvin's hand in tape. And it looks like uh, Ronnie wins a national title and he doesn't. That was what so that's that was for me the best North American match of 1986. This is going to sound funny. I didn't think that was the best match of 1986, but it is my favorite match of 1986. I mean, I remember watching that uh, late at night. Uh, we got worldwide started at midnight on Channel 25 out here, and Dusty actually made the match so much better through his commentary, which doesn't always happen, but it did. And, you know, I thought for sure, yeah, Ron Garvin won the national title, and he didn't. It was probably like a three-and-three-quarter, four-star match, but it was my favorite match of 1986, despite there being a five-star match, if that makes any sense. I can totally see that. There's there's lots of times where my favorite match from something is not the objectively, or you know, as objective as you can be when you're talking about match ratings, objectively best match. But uh, for me, and uh, there's some bias showing here because I'm such a huge fan of Tully Blanchard. I'm also a huge fan of Ronnie Garvin. And then so for these two guys to get a long match on TV and it, and it was, it's the quintessential JCP match. It goes the whole hour. It's in front of a crowd that looks like they're losing their minds. It's in an arena that looks like it's about a hundred degrees. So the guys are sweating all over the place. It's the, the audio on the match is loud. You've got dusty on commentary. It's kind of the whole picture with the, and then the crazy finish with the, the wrapping of the, the fist, that whole thing. Like I said, for me, that's that's the best match of '86. But I could certainly be persuaded uh, to because there was man, there was a lot of options, a lot of good matches in 1986. You're forgetting the part where Tommy Young is swinging his arms wildly at the end, saying, "No tape, no tape." <laughs> uh, Tommy Young, he was great. See, I'm and I'm the exact opposite. I don't like Tommy Young. I didn't. I. I I've soured on him over the years because I, I think he detracts from matches. <laughs> and I know I'm kind of uh, out, on, uh, out on a limb there. I know most people do. I don't, I don't particularly like him, but, yeah, that <laughs> on occasion he, he was definitely – he was really good. I mean, I, I look at him and, like, David Crockett. Like, I know they had their negatives, but, you know, for, for trivia purposes, I mean, they, they were definitely an entertaining part of the package. Until yesterday, I was like, I had Garvin versus Blanchard in my notes. No, it's not match of the year, but I loved that match. 
And yesterday, I'm like, okay, this is a one-match contest if we're just talking about uh, United States and Canada. And that is the Ric Flair versus Barry Windham match that aired on Battle of the Belts 2, February 14th, 1986. Very rarely will I give a match five stars. I think this was the only five-star match of 1986. And then I stop and think about it. And I was like, you know, nothing else is even close. What's that, what even is number two? And it's because I was just thinking about Crockett, WWF, and Watts. And then I start, and I think about the AWA. I'm like, well, wait a minute. The AWA had two great matches in 1986. The Nick Bockwinkle versus Kurt Henning one-hour draw, and the match you were talking about, the bloodbath between the Midnight Rockers and Buddy Rose and Doug Summers, where, I mean, I don't know if it was a happy accident or the production crew just came up with a great idea where there was blood on the lens of one of the cameras, which gave us one of the greatest shots of all time. Yeah, that. Well, I thought, like you said, the, those two matches from the AWA were 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 tremendous. They, you know, the AWA definitely hit and miss in '86, but boy, when they hit, and that one and that one hour match for, and I, if I remember right, they only did like one or two commercials, if that, for the one hour match. And I remember watching it on New Year's Eve. What an incredible one hour draw. With, and bloody and violent as well, and of course you've got the the tag match with uh, with Rose as it was it dropping uh, Shawn Michaels on the back of the chair and all kinds of wild action. And here trivia about the the Wyndham and uh, Flair match. And I don't have that as five stars. That's more like a four and a half star for me. But that match is the debut of the big gold belt as well. I was not aware of that. Very first time it was seen. And then they showed it on TV, TBS later. I re- recorded the uh, the Henning versus Bockwinkle match slash entire show. I had just started getting the Observer, so I, I was not a very smart young man at the time. And when the match first started, even I could tell him, like, this is going an hour because Rod Trongard you know, was just like just giving it away in his commentary. Like, OK, kids, we're, we're in here for a long ride. Get comfortable. Yeah, then when they start talking about you know how much time has passed and so forth, yeah, you know they're going long, and you and they definitely kind of uh, telegraphed that it was going to go an hour. But with those two, who, those two guys in the ring, who cares? It's a shame we didn't get somebody better on the microphone because Trongard was so horrible. You know, it would have been nice if we could have gotten, you know, like Lance Russell or one of the guys from from Jim Crockett or something like that. But even with that, what an incredible match! It really was, and I was completely underwhelmed by Kurt Henning the entire time I was aware of him from 1981 moving forward. People act like, you know, Kurt Henning came out of the womb as a great worker. No, he did not, but he held up his end during that match, and I think it was kind of, okay, the Kurt Henning era is beginning. Like, I can now see the AWA championship on him, and pretty soon I would. Yeah, they they definitely it's almost like they kind of put him in there as a test. Okay, we're going to give you and Nick an hour. Let's see what you can do. And if you can hang with him, then we'll we'll push you the next step and then of course, you know, 5 months later he's the champion. Yeah, I can see that. And match of the year in the uh, Wrestling Observer was Ric Flair versus Barry Windham. A little bit of a surprise because, you know, I know Battle of the Belts was nationally syndicated, but we got the first one. We didn't get the second one. But I guess back then, 86, a lot of guys were already trading tapes. So that's how that's how people saw it. 
Do you, yeah, I would. I, I, that's probably the case. Do you know what were the like second, third, and fourth place for '86? Do you have those uh, for the Observer? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Hang on. I have the Observer yearbook in my hot little hand. I need reading glasses for this. This is probably something like people really don't know about because it's hard to find. Match of the year, 1986, uh, in the Observer. Number one, Ric Flair and Barry Windham. Number two, Ricky Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu versus Saruta and Tenru from January 28th. Not eligible here. Number three, Tatsumi Fujinami versus Akira Maeda, June 12th. Number four, eligible. Had this get on here. Midnight Express versus the Rock and Roll Express, uh, August 16th from Philadelphia. That must have aired. Uh, let me see. And number five, Takata versus Koshinaka from September 19th. And honorable mention goes to Fantastic versus Sheepherders from the Crockett Cup. The Rockers versus Rose and Summers match we talked about. Cobra versus Takata. And uh, let me see. Ric Flair versus Ricky Morton from Charlotte, which I think, uh, it, which I know is out there. I have it. Bulldogs versus Valentine and Beefcake from Chicago. That's what the Observer readership had to say. Okay, those those are some quality picks. Even the so the eight sixteen eighty six one. That's off of Worldwide. That was a show. I think that might even be the same show that had the Magnum and Nikita two out of three falls match. That was a loaded, loaded episode. I remember that. I, although I think I probably would have gone, if I'm going to pick Rock and Roll and, and Midnight Express, I might go with the uh, Superstars on the Superstation title change. I'm still kicking myself for forgetting to watch that when it originally aired. Oh, boy. That, that was uh, that was must-see TV for me. I taped that and watched it over and over and over again and with Ronnie Garvin and Ric Flair going for the world title. Yeah, that was must-see for me. Oh, it was must-see for me, too, and I forgot about it. It was on a Friday night, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. right. Yeah, and it just like, you know, went between my ears as things often did when I was 20 or 20. Yeah, I was 20 back then. All right, uh, let me see. Tag Team of the Year. Using PWI metrics, what do you go with, Tabe? I got British Bulldogs there. Again, same kind of same kind of criteria as Match of the Year. Big stars on the big stage, and, you know, they're, they were over they were over with casual fans every people knew who they were they were they were a big draw for the wwf and they they headlined cards uh when hogan wasn't around so for me from a kayfabe perspective definitely uh british bulldogs for from a kayfabe perspective for me I mean, I think it's it's the Road Warriors or nobody. I mean, they even though they they didn't win the tag team titles, it was like they transcended tag team wrestling. It's like okay, you know, these guys are the champions and they are on you know the the third or fourth match down, but the Road Warriors were in the main event. I mean, they were the focus of Starcade '86. Well, I guess the scaffold match itself was, but like I said, it almost seemed like they were above the tag team titles. Yeah, I can see that because they they you know they won the they won the first Crockett Cup, so they you know they all oh yeah, so, and that and that was a big deal even for casual fans. There's 24 teams from all over the world and all of that, and the Road Warriors end up winning, and they win cleanly over a babyface team in the finals, relatively cleanly anyway, and they went all over the world. They were then they they started the year in the AWA and came to and were you know, on and off with the Russians and stuff like that. Yeah, I can totally buy that and i know and 
even among casual fans in 86, they were definitely, um, you know, maybe I want to change my vote. Am I allowed to change my vote? <laughs> I think You're you, allowed I think, to change your vote, sure. I think, I, might, I think you might have talked me into it, and then I sold myself on it. Um, I'm going to go with a tie with the Bulldogs and the, and the Road Warriors. And as PWI in one of their special issues, that when they're dream card, let's put those two teams against each other. How about that? All right, there you go. Uh, using Wrestling Observer criteria, who do you go with for Tag Team of the Year 1986, Dave? Okay, now this one is a no-brainer for me, and that's not even close, and that is the Midnight Express. They're the best team in the world, and they may be the best team of all time, and this is them right at their peak, although you can make an argument for 87 and 88. This is when they're at their hottest with Cornette and all that. I'm going to go with uh, the Midnight Express. For me, it was painful. I went back and forth all day uh, between the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express. I mean, the Rock and Roll Express were so good. They clearly were draws. I mean, you know, you can't see it on WWE Network, but if you go on YouTube, you can find, like, the Rock and Rolls coming out on Worldwide Wrestling in 1986. I mean, I've said this before. It sounds like the Beals are coming out. The girls are going crazy. I ultimately, I can't make it a tie. I went with the Midnight Express as Tag Team of the Year using Observer criteria because the Rock and Roll Express had a painfully bad match on WTBS towards the end of the year against Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez. I did not see a bad Midnight Express match probably ever. Yeah, you can you can make the case for the Rock and Roll Express. So personally, I always liked the Fantastics against the Midnight Express uh, more than the Rock and Roll Express, but the, there was nobody more over in 1986 than the Rock and Rolls. Like you said, man, when they walked out, when the music hit, the the arenas just lost their minds, and we just don't we don't get that anymore with anybody. Maybe, maybe Steve Austin at his peak could kind of get there. You just don't see that kind of visceral reaction of people losing their minds you could so you could definitely make a case for rock and roll express but for me the midnights they're better in the ring than the rock and roll express just from a you know from an artistic perspective they're a better working team so i for me not even close i'm going with midnights well, I think the the Midnight Express is the best tag team of all time and that includes you know both incarnations of the Midnight Express but anyway all right, we're finally there. Uh, oh, by the way, Pro Wrestling Illustrated had the Rock and Roll Express. The Observer had the Midnight Express. So there you go. All right, Wrestler of the Year, 1986. Tabe, using Pro Wrestling Illustrated criteria, who do you go with? I've got uh, Ric Flair. Ric Flair. And uh, I know that might be a little, from a kayfabe perspective, maybe a little questionable because Hulk Hogan was the big star in the in, in the WWF. But for me, Ric Flair is on TV every week, and he's the world champion. He was a world champion for all except for three weeks. He headlined all the big shows. He was on the big shows on you know on the, the superstars on the Superstation. He was on all of the syndicated TVs all over the place. For me, he's the guy. I went with Ric Flair for both of them. And Ric Flair, obviously, you know, the NWA, the uh, After Magazines consider that on the, actually they consider it on, on a higher level than the WWF. Um, he was the world champion. He went through all kinds of challengers. Hogan had a great year, but I thought, you know, strictly kayfabe, Ric Flair was the guy. As far as the Observer goes, um, 
you know, people might say, oh, well, Hulk Hogan was the better draw. Hey, Ric Flair was a draw in 1986. Uh, JCP was on fire. So I think, you know, using any criteria, Ric Flair is the guy for 1986. And one thing I wanted to mention, I tried so hard to kind of shoehorn Terry Gordy into this discussion because he had such a big 1986. He broke through as a single star. He was the main man in Bill Watts' promotion. He was believable. You could talk about, you know, okay, who's better from a kayfabe standpoint? You know, Gordy was that good. You know, you could say, looking at it straight from a kayfabe standpoint, yeah, he could beat Hogan. Yeah, he could beat Ric Flair. And like I said, you know, he he won the tournament for the title, and he was a, a great champion. He had great TV matches, but at the end of the day, I got to make him number three. Yeah, I don't know if I would have Gordy up that high because at, at least in 1986, I didn't buy him as a world champion. I do much more now. I appreciate Gordy a lot more now than I did back then. But to me, it kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere because I still saw him as a tag team guy. And part of that is because I, had, I hadn't seen World Class at the time. And World Class featured Gordy a few times in singles matches. So you saw him a lot more outside of the tag teams where on World Class and on the UWF, it, he seemed more like a, he came in as a tag team guy. And then all of a sudden he's kind of the, he, he becomes the world champion. So I didn't necessarily buy it. I don't know if I'd put him up that high, certainly in terms of ring work, he was really, really good in, in 1986. But for me, uh, for Wrestling Observer, I also went with Ric Flair just because you just can't match the, ma- the, you can't top the match quality that he had with more different people in 86 he had the the feud with Wyndham he had a ton of great matches with Ronnie Garvin he had the matches with Dusty even were pretty good he had the, the he won and lost the title he had uh Ricky Morton though there's the one hour draw that's out there on on tape there's a couple of cage matches that are out there as well and all of them are great you know and he he had the the run through the the bash with all the different guys, the Hawk and animal and all the different challengers that he had there. I just, from a, a wrestling observer, putting heavy emphasis on drawing and ring work. I don't see how anybody tops Ric Flair. No, same here. And we're, you know, and that's the thing in 86, I bought Terry Gordy as a world champion. I really did. And, you know, Adrian Adonis was gifted or no, he won the Southwest, uh, the Southwest version of the world heavyweight championship in 1983. And as much as I loved Adrian Adonis, we're talking 83 Adrian Adonis here. I didn't buy him as a world champion. I didn't say, okay, you know, Adrian Adonis, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Nick Bockwinkel, one of these guys does not fit in. But Terry Gordy in 1986, I mean, I didn't get UWF on television, but I read it in the magazines, and I, I totally bought Terry Gordy as a world champion. I mean, you know, people, great minds tend to have different ideas, Tabe. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I think maybe part of the problem with Gordy is that his reign got cut off. Because it was it a car wreck or something here he got injured, and so he had he ends up forfeiting the title on t v so he doesn't we don't get the full world title reign that we might have otherwise, so maybe i it's 
I would, I'm holding that against him, although that's not necessarily his fault. Like I said, looking back, I, he's, he's a credible champion. At the time, I just didn't buy it. And I, I was actually fortunate enough. I did get UWF-TV back then, which was mind-blowing uh, to see because it was so different than what we were getting before. But I just didn't quite buy him as a world champion. Like I said, I definitely do now, though. Yeah, you know, it's 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 wild. 1986 is now more than 35 years ago, but it was a great, great year in wrestling. And I, I hope everyone enjoyed Chris and I uh, kind of commemorating it on this show. Chris, you were a great guest as usual. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you so much. I do appreciate it. I'm uh, always happy to be on. Thank you for asking me again. Apparently, you haven't learned your lesson yet because you keep asking me back. And uh, hopefully, you don't ever learn your lesson because I do enjoy doing it. And uh, this is a great topic. I love 86 wrestling. So it may be the best year of wrestling ever for the U.S. So, yeah, definitely appreciate it. Had a good time. And thank you very much, John. Uh, you're always welcome. Thank you for, for giving us the time. I want to thank everyone for listening to Stick to Wrestling. We will be back next week. And let me see, I want to thank our producer, Luke Hippelman, who does such a great job week in and week out making this show sound a whole lot better than it deserves to be. And I want to thank Brian Last and the Arcadian Vanguard Network for having this show. And this has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.